Hello and welcome to 10 by 9 where 9 people have up to 10 minutes each to tell a true story from their own life. I'm Paul Doran and this is the 10 by 9 podcast. February already and the snowdrops are out and the daffodils aren't far behind, thankfully. While we wait for better weather though, let 10 by 9 keep you warm with wonderful stories. And how cheesy is that? And there are three stories in this podcast. Three women, three first-timers, three themes. I very quickly made the assumption that it was a church group. And my past life in church helped me to establish the purpose for the Sunday beach visit. A baptism. Sometimes I've been called a radical. Sometimes I've been called an instigator. I've even been called an extremist. Definitely a troublemaker. And if I am, I don't want to be anything else. He bought me a thermal top, but not the whole thermal. He donated money for one arm. A family day at the beach ends in embarrassment. A mother is enraged by the hate directed at her children. And we meet Elton, who's not fond of spending money. So let's get started. It was November 30th and the Integrated Education Fund had sponsored an evening on the theme Transform. Integrated education in this context means children from different religious backgrounds being taught together. Here's Sarah Matherson with her Transform story. To transform, to change in form, appearance or structure, change in condition, nature or character, to convert. On average, you'll replace each and every cell in your body within seven years. So unless anyone here is under seven, uh, we've uh, all transformed many, many times since we were born. It's science. It's a fact. We don't expect anyone to look the same as they did when they were younger or even seven years ago. But why then? When it comes to personality, beliefs, or the outlook of others, do we find ourselves thinking or saying or hearing statements like, she's changed, he's not the person he used to be, I just don't know her anymore, or the old classic, he used to be a nice fella. We say it with such shock, like somehow it's abnormal. It's the same with organisations like schools and churches and businesses. It's not the school it used to be or wasn't like that in my day. Thank goodness it's not because that was maybe 20 years ago. So change is inevitable. It brings growth, new life, diversity. Imagine if we were all the same as we were when we were teenagers or the schools that we went to hadn't moved on since we left them. My story of transformation is about my own change, partnered with a resentment for who I was compared with who I am now, realising that it's okay to look back at myself and see someone completely different, that who I was before has been part of who I've become today that every experience I have has an impact on who I will become. Even writing and reading this story here tonight is shaping my future self. This summer, I was sitting on my favourite beach in Port Ballantrae with my family. 
It was a quiet Sunday, and we had spent every day since arriving on the Thursday on the beach. We'd acquired our own area that we returned to each day, with rocks for the towels to dry on, close enough to the ramp for quick access to the shop and the toilets, and to drag our beach car up and down whilst bringing being near enough to the water to see my daughter paddling. We'd mastered where to position the windbreaks, the beach chairs and the blankets. We'd created our own piece of port ballantrae perfection. Heidi was playing in the sand in between rock pooling with daddy and paddling in the shallow area. She'd just brought back a crab in her bucket and she was absolutely delighted. My 16-year-old son hadn't made it yet, having grown out of beach days several years ago. My mum was reading, I was drifting in and out of sleep and listening to other conversations and family dramas unfold around me. For once, they weren't my own family dramas. And I think my husband was even managing to read snippets of the Sunday paper. If Carlsberg did beach days, this would be way up there. Then I looked up to notice a largish group walking down to the beach. They clearly weren't in the usual beach attire. Every time I looked up, there were more people. I very quickly made the assumption that it was a church group. And my past life in church helped me to establish the purpose for the Sunday beach visit, a baptism. My heart sunk. I felt annoyed and embarrassed. Annoyed that a crowd had arrived to disturb my perfect, quiet beach day. And embarrassed because as a teenager and into my early 20s, I'd been one of that group. My mum had watched me getting baptised in a full water submersion when I was 15. Although mine was an indoor paddling pool as I lived nowhere near the sea. But I knew the score go in the water, come out transformed, wash the sins away and start afresh. So why was I so embarrassed? I suppose that when you can't reconcile who you are now with who you were then, there's a sense of shame in your integrity. If I believed it then, why not now? Or if I don't believe it now, how could it have been real back then? The truth is, I just did believe it then, and I just don't believe it now. I'd changed. Without really making a choice, I grew up, and my experience and understanding of the world slowly shifted. As a teenager, it was incredibly real and important to me. Without church, I don't believe I would have got through my teenage years so happily and unscathed. When my family let me down, I was surrounded by a group of people who loved me and cared for me. They kept me busy and safe when I so easily could have gone off the rails. When you've been so involved with something and then you aren't, these situations are incredibly awkward. Watching the club that you used to be a part of from the outside. I'm not that person anymore, but... Why couldn't I be happy for these people on the beach living their journey and changing in their own way? But in that moment, I just couldn't. I watched as several teenagers and a couple of adults were baptised. 
The crowd on the beach cheered every time and I cringed. Every time another cheer went up, I felt more annoyed. But their reality was just as important as mine. They may journey away from that life or just be journeying journeying into it after a life full of other choices. Some may live securely in that belief system for their whole lives and for others, it could just be another step in their story. So when they finally left, we had our beach day back to ourselves and I could relax and start listening into people's conversations again. And my husband and I talked about it and how it had made us both feel so uncomfortable, how it brought back who we used to be and what we used to believe. The more I've thought about it since, the more I've realized that we need to live with who we were, who we are now and who we're going to become, that nothing's settled. We're forever changing and growing and becoming something different. All parts of our lives are important. The good, the bad, and the ugly. The people who knew me as a teenager would have been horrified that I didn't stand up and cheer for the Paul Ballantrae baptisms. Maybe I should have done. Maybe it's okay to celebrate the transformations around us, even if we don't agree or understand. My mum celebrated my baptism, even though she didn't believe in what I was doing, because she knew it was important to me. As a parent now, I'm part of a significant transformation for my eldest child, and it's one I don't fully understand or always agree with, but that's a completely other story, story and one I'm not ready to tell yet, so maybe like in 20 years I'll be here and I'll tell that story, but not not now. (laughs) But by telling this story, I hope that I can learn to be more accepting understanding of and willing to accept change and be ready to take people exactly where they are on this wonderful, emotional and sometimes bloody difficult transformational journey of life. Thank you. Thanks so much, Sarah. That was so good. I hope you'll be back with us soon. We're always looking for new storytellers at 10 by 9 so if you'd like to tell your first story, like Sarah, then get in touch at the 10 by 9 website. Why not make it a challenge to yourself for this year? Looking forward to hearing from you. Okay, let's get on to our next story, and it was a cold Monday in December, and 10 by 9 was invited to take part in the annual Human Rights Festival here in Belfast. We never say no to a good festival, and that's where we met Naomi Green. My name always confuses people when they see me. Like you, we keep our names when we get married um, in in the Muslim community. Um, Some of you might know me, a lot of you won't. Um, For those who do, sometimes I've been called a radical, sometimes I've been called an instigator, I've even been called an extremist, definitely a troublemaker. And if I am, I don't want to be anything else. And if I am radical, this is my origin story. I had recently moved back home from Kuwait with my two eldest children after deciding it was better for them to grow up around family rather than the more isolated life of an expat in the Gulf. My eldest was about to start school, so we packed our bags and came to Northern Ireland. It was Ramadan, and after a month, uh, spending a month fasting, I was eager to celebrate Eid al-Fitr. 
the Muslim festival that marks the breaking of the fast at the end of Ramadan. Dressed in our best, we bundled ourselves into the car and attended the local Eid gathering in a Belfast leisure centre. However, the day took an alarming turn. Uh, before we could start, someone phoned and threatened the centre staff for hosting us and set off the fire alarm, sending us scrambling out of the building. I stood in the rain with my confused children, debating with myself had I made a mistake to move back here. The fire brigade came, the police came, they checked everything out, and eventually we returned inside, continued our celebrations, and forgot the inconvenience. Back home that evening, I opened my social media to find someone had shared posts about our Eid celebration. One photo had captured a group of men getting ready to pray, but it was not the photo that struck me. It was the comments beneath. Phrases like, burn them out, bomb them, and even kill them. The stark contrast between the festive atmosphere we had experienced and the hate-filled comments we had seen online was jarring. I was in that building with my children. Upset, I blocked the accounts and put it out of my mind. Two months later, it was the big Eid, Eid al-Atta, the Feast of the Sacrifice, and it was time to celebrate again. This time we changed locations and the celebration would be held in Lisbon. The day was good, filled with laughter, joy. My children shared sweets and we met with friends. We filled up all the cafes and we ate far too much. Returning home, I again was confronted with a hateful reality. Photos of women and children this time was at the Eid venue were on my screen, but one looked very familiar. I looked again, my heart stopping. It was my then three-year-old daughter who had been proudly twirling in her pink tutu. My heart sank as I read the vile comments, yet again, the same threats of hate and the same violence. Bomb them, burn them, kill them. Only this time, it wasn't just that we were in the same building. The photos contained the image of my own child. The mama bear in me awoke with a newfound determination. This time, I refused to let it slide. I called the police. I went to the station and I poured my heart out in the interview room, breaking down in the process. Enough was enough. A few weeks later, I received a call. The fenders had been spoken to and they apologized, um, uh, claiming no harm was meant. I was frustrated. The words lacked any sincerity. I felt like nothing had changed, but something did change. It wasn't the first time I or my children were targeted, and nor sadly was it to be the last, but something inside of me shifted. Rather than simply succumbing to despair, I found a new purpose. I left my job in medical genetics and became an advocate, immersed myself in community work, re-enrolled in university to get my PhD in social policy. In Northern Ireland, where those outside the binary, orange and green traditions are often viewed as other, and often forgotten. This journey became not just a personal struggle, but a purpose. My children belong here. I belong here. Children, regardless of their gender, their orientation, their religion or color, belong here. It became a promise to myself, but mainly to my children, that we can have a society that promotes dignity and freedom and justice for all. But it's not just going to happen by itself. 
It's a future we have to fight for collectively, especially in the face of growing intolerance, global inequalities, conflict and repression, to build a more inclusive and hopeful future, not for me, but for generations to come, not just for my children, but for yours and every child who decides to wear a pink tutu. What a powerful story, Naomi. Thank you for telling it. As you know, 10 by 9 is always free and always will be, but I just want to say a big thank you, as always, to everyone who has donated via Patreon over the years. There's a link at the 10 by 9 website, and thanks too to everyone who has given at the live events. You help keep us going, and we really appreciate it. Also, a big shout-out to Simon Masood and Mark Clifford on their first 10 by 9 Nottingham event. They had a full house and great stories. Congratulations. Check them out if you're in the area. Okay, on to our third and final story on this podcast, and it was a dark, dreary November evening. If there are any other kinds, let me know. And the theme was sick. But the stories were amazing, including this one from Rachel Smith. I was being shown to my accommodation for the summer of 1992. I was 19, a tent, it was pouring with rain. Me and my rucksack had arrived for the summer. The said tent was full of bikes and little did I know at that point that those bikes and others to follow would be my sleeping companions on and off for the next 26 years. The owner of the bikes arrived at the tent, a man who looked like a handsome fox with long red strawberry blonde hair. Strange to think that that hair over the next years would tangle with mine. I said, there's bikes in my tent. And he explained that it was very important that bikes stayed dry and maybe I could find another tent. And oh, by the way, did I want to go to the library that night and it was a walk through the forest. The whole situation was surreal. Nowhere to sleep and a strange red-headed gentleman inviting me to a library wearing a raincoat. So I joined the crowd of outdoor instructors and group leaders of Bratton Park Summer Camp, one of them being the man with the red hair. The beginning of an incredible story and the library that was the beginning of many stories for many of us. A library that was really a pub. And stories that cover continents, that paddle rivers, that climb mountains and changed my life forever. To get back from the pub was not that easy. I'm not sure why we didn't bring torches, but often at breakfast the following day, people would have bashed faces from walking into trees in the dark of a summer's night, and we would laugh and do it all over again. Those heady days of summer where we lost our voices from yelling and singing to large groups of children whilst we kayaked and climbed and had very little sleep. There was a chalkboard in our staff room. Who had kissed who? Some people's names jumped, seemed to jump around on that board and we would laugh and do it all over again. Summer ended and we all travelled on to new journeys of the world. Elton, the red-headed fox and I met under the clock in Waterloo Station. I would see him as he crossed the concourse with the confidence of a man who could climb mountains with ease. We met under that clock for many years to come. Like a map, colliding, rejoining, taking new paths, refinding the road back. He hated spending money. We ate so much pasta, cheap vegetables and slightly weird cheap cheese and that terrible margarine with a blue stripe. One time in Barnstable, he refused to pay for parking or sit in a cafe, so we ate pasties in the rain. 
He would vanish off to instruct and teach all over the world. I went to uni and worked. We loved other people, but we always found our way back. He was working in France and I took the ferry and was violently sick for the whole journey, lying across the floor thinking, goodness, the things I do for Elton. He'd shaved his head. We were in our late twenties by now and we slept in a tent with a bike. Then drove to southern France and marvelled at mountains and rivers. I swam, he kayaked, and one night I persuaded him that we could eat pizza, not pasta. He bought me a thermal top, but not the whole thermal. He donated money for one arm. <laughs> Time spent trying to persuade me that I wanted to live in Stoke-on-Trent, Devon, Cornwall, North Wales, Dubai, and my attempt that Northern Ireland was now home and that he should really come here. The mountains he rode had got so much higher. The Himalayas and messages from Kathmandu. Bikes, bikes, bikes. He moved to Dubai, he married twice, but we found our way back. We kayaked in Oman and lay under the stars and talked of the past and we talked of our love. He had a bike in his apartment and was now a semi-pro cyclist. We made real pasta, we had got posh. We went to see Coldplay on New Year's Eve in Abu Dhabi and we talked of what were our greatest achievements in life. We laughed and looked back. And we laughed so much at the guy standing next to us who sang really badly the whole way through. We had a capacity for pride in each other and we understood each other's jokes. And we also knew how to sing all around my hat, I will wear the green willow. Our love for each other was like a baseline to living. We tried to let each other grow and go and be there, but let each other go. The message that changed it all, the email that said without saying, I need you to come back. I need you to come back. Bath, England, 2019. He listened to cats purring when the pain got too much. He lay on the floor and sent me images of unicorns as the medicine kicked in. As the palliative care team tried to gently persuade him to get a syringe driver, I said, stop with the gentle. He laughed and said, we don't even sleep together anymore, but I guess I'll do as she says. We ate food with Irulan, his sister. He ate very little and we talked of our shared life, of his strange sense of humour and how we met under the clock in Waterloo Station. He said, I've saved all this money, but for nothing for what? Money is for living and all those bikes gathered dust. I contacted the friends that had gone and they came back. They came back. He asked me to officiate his funeral, my job suddenly being so painfully needed. I swore at him and he gave me a face that said, you don't have to if you don't want to. But of course I would do it. We played a game of music and memory. What track related to you and me? What track connected you to others? We talked of life, of money, of love. We talked so much of love. When we could, we would go outside and walk slowly amongst big trees and remember the days in the wood and the library and that life was for living. I was on rugby tour with my kids and I got a text saying, thank you for overstepping the mark and I love you. I told his best friend Keith to go to the hospice. They'd been estranged and he went straight away and they laughed and talked cycling as if Elton would cycle again. He died as the nurse talked to him of mountains and of how he was loved. He didn't have a hearse, just a kind of a car. I read of adventure and of the world. I read of love. And then I pressed the button for the curtains to close and the coffin to go. 
A chapter finished, the laughter stored in places within me. The sound of a cat reminds me sometimes of his heart trying to be calm. The letters arrived in the post a week after the funeral, all of them, every single one since we were 19 years old. We'd both kept the letters. He had always used small brown envelopes and notes ripped out of a notebook. I had used different coloured paper and at times airmail envelopes. The letters match like a story, a story of us growing up, of love and adventure, of parting, reconnection and of a world we explored. His friend Keith and I scattered his ashes in Wales. We knelt by a river and watched them flow away with our tears. And Keith told the story as if Elton was in a kayak. The ebb and the flow and the shouts of delight that took him away for the very last time, never to come back, no way to return. Thank you so much, Rachel, for introducing us to Elton. Such a sad loss. And that's it for this podcast. Check out all the 2024 dates on our website and be sure to keep up with us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. You'll find updates there on a regular basis. Thanks to everyone who makes 10 by 9 happen, especially Leanne McConville, Margaret McClory, and Chris O'Donoghue. There will be no 10 by 9 without them. Thanks to the beautiful people of the Black Box and our amazing and supportive audiences. You are a wonder. Thanks to all our storytellers, of course. But the biggest thanks this week goes to Sarah Matheson, Naomi Green, and Rachel Smith. I'm Paul Dorn, and I'll be back with another podcast soon. But for now, bye bye. <laughs>